Story number one. Pretty little death worlders going on a Xenope safari. Note. The following passages are taken from the personal notes of the renowned Bemaha Xenopsychobiologist, Kalamandar the Wise Boned, during his initial trip to the human homeworld of Earth. Kalamandar's insights into the human psychology and the psychology of death worlders in general are considered to be highly relevant in the events preceding, during, and after the First Ella League War. Xenopsychobiology is a field of study devoted to the understanding of how the development and biology of a species affects the general psychological state and behavior of that species. Earth, Earth was extremely interesting to the xenopsychobiologists due to the status as the only death world to produce a stable, sapient civilizations. Therefore, Kalamanador arranged to go and see the life on Earth for himself in order to try and explain humanity. Earth XPB Study Day 1 A single day on Earth is similar in length to the day of the Great Shell. Perhaps one human fall faster, no more. This is rather bearable, comparatively to some planets I've been to. I had some difficulty in choosing the initial location of my visit. All known planets have a large degree of biodiversity as life adapts to the different conditions in each region of the world, so it's also difficult to know where to look first. The human colleague of mine suggested the continent of Africa, as this was the humanity first evolved. Further investigations inform me that Africa has both rainforests and deserts, is the home world to the large ranges of protected ecological space, and has conditions similar to my own home back on the Great Shell. Therefore, I chose to do the human nation of Kenya. A little note on Kenya, I think, shall be appropriate. It is not a very hot region on Earth. It is highly fertile soil and sizable mountains by the planet's standards. But the nation has faced difficulties in the past from colonialism and unrest. But it has grown to be quite the economically significant. Its culture so far from homogenous as it is built on the lands of many ancient tribes and groups. Another reason why I chose to visit the area. The primary language is Earth Swahili, though Earth English is also commonly used. Upon my arrival, I was greeted by Elizabeth Kahoro, a human diplomat who was evidently to be my guide from the visit. She seems a friendly sort, just the kind of person you want taking you on a tour of an alien world, in my opinion. Once I am settled, Kahara takes me on a short tour of the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, and then she'll take me south to the wildlife reserve, so that I can see what sort of things humans may have had to contend with during their evolution. I have chosen to bring additional shower plating for the strip. Earth XPB Study Day 3 Our tour of Nairobi is finished, and what an interesting city! Humans built tall! which makes sense given their biology. It seems that I have covered every available surface with green planet life that is native to this world. All of this is quite sadly standard. I hoped to see something dramatically dangerous. Unfortunately, I think that Dr. Brewer's insistence that there was a carnivorous plants on this planet was a humorous lie. Oh well, they're probably for the best. I asked Kahara about the excess of plant life, 
and she explained that in Earth's not-too-distant past, human industry and expansionism had caused a large amount of damage to the planet's ecosystem and the atmosphere. In particular, they had released large amounts of carbon dioxide, which warmed the world dangerously. Part of the solution had been to put plants everywhere. This had also had the side effect of teaching people to be more environmentally conscious, and a lesson on dependence on large-scale, ecologically unsafe agriculture. This surprised me. When my people discovered fossil fuels, we reacted with caution. We questioned what was with the smoke and what might do with the long run. Ultimately, we still use it, but we avoided the catastrophe like the ones that the humans had dealt with. Most species did the same. So why were the humans different? I suspect the answer to this question is the same as the answer to the question of why did Dr. Brewer drink doozy toxins? Namely, that humans are psychologically geared heavily towards impulsiveness. But why would this be the case? Their physical strength is notable, and their throwing capacity is incredible. But they do not have any armor or natural poison of their own, or even claws. Surely psychobiology would dictate that they share caution with the rest of the galaxy. So why don't they? Earth, XPP Study, Day 4 Kaharo informs me that the carnivorous plants do exist, just not in this part of the world. This makes me suspect that the terrible drop bears that Dr. Brewer mentioned were also real. Thank goodness I didn't go to Australia. Earth, XBB Study, Day 6 We've arrived at the Masai Mara Game Reserve. If the map I've been given is accurate, it is a large area of wilderness with the occasional camps and lodges for tourists. Here, wildlife is fiercely protected from something called uh, poaching. Evidently, there are some kinds of war going on between humans who want to hunt wildlife and humans who want to stomp them. Apparently, there are some difficulties with procuring a suitable vehicle for the journey further into the Mara, owing to my size and shape. The head guard of our group, Dr. David Nakasari, noted that my unusual appearance would probably dissuade any predators from coming near me, as they would not have seen anything like me before. Still, it pays to be cautious. I have provided a modified van with a large open windows that I can sit in the back and be quite comfortable. Tomorrow I venture into the Mara with the guards. Onwards! Earth, XBB Study, Day 7 I had read that Earth's creatures before visiting. I had read of the ferocious lion with its terrible teeth and claws and cunning pack instincts. I had read of hyenas that laugh at their prey. I had read of elephants, generally docile, but unimaginably grand. The long-necked giraffes, the territorial hippos, the charging rhinoceri. I had read them all. But I had not truly imagined them. The first great beasts I saw was a herd of wildebeest, wandering in a huge numbers across the plains. They reminded me of a little of the strictic. They were nothing particularly notable about them, save for the thrill one gets to seeing a large alien animal peacefully grazing, not three dinar away from you. We stayed a while and watched the wildebeest grazing. After about half an hour, something dramatic happened. I felt my spine tingle in alarm. A moment later, the lioness burst out of the grass at the edge of the herd, latching onto the stray wildebeest that had strayed too far away from the rest, 
and digging her claws into its side. The herd panicked. I nearly did too, and started to scatter. That's when the second lioness appeared, and the third. I've never seen anything like them before in my life. They move with such a fluidity, such a grace, but also such power. Every instinct in my body told me to hunker down into my shell and not move again for a hundred cycles. I kept my head out and kept watching. Even the humans with me seemed a little nervous at the sight. Don't worry, Nakaseri, told me in a low voice. This man is more than fast enough to escape a charging lioness. Not that they'll go for us anyway. They've already had their meal. The lioness snarled and roared, and I retreated a little further into my shell. The rest of the wildebeest recognized that the kind was lost, had fled. Oh, the thundering of their hooves! I shall never forget it. Are you okay? one of the guards asked. Your head's disappearing. I looked under the spectacle of death. Fascinating as it is, I think I would like to move on. Earth, XPB Study, Day 11 on most worlds, species adopt a passive stance towards one another, save for the obvious exceptions of predators. Conflict between species is rare, and the waste energy that would be used for foraging, migrating, or mating. Plants with successful sapient life forms tend to have a large amount of biodiversity that can be carefully cultivated to fill the sapient population's needs. In the Stellar League, there are two exceptions to this. The Telfari, homeworld of the Doozy, has so much foliage that many of the herbivores evolved to be utterly ravenous, hence the poison. Earth's homeworld of the humans is an absolute hell world of constant attempted murder on every count. Even the herbivores are vicious. A hippo will charge you down and maul you for getting too close to its pond. A zebra or a horse will happily kick you hard enough to crack a shell if it gets spooked. And don't get me started on the elephants. And apparently it has always been like this. I've been watching the human-made nature documentaries in my spare time to try and see some things from their point of view. Last night, I watched Walking with Dinosaurs, a fascinating miniseries about a great reptiles that used to rule the world. What horrors! Lives defined by death and misery. Frankly, the meteor was the least horrifying part of the story. So why are humans so reckless? Would they not want to avoid dangers? I have a theory, but it would still require more research to my fully express. Earth, XPB Study, Day 12 A most bizarre encounter. Early this morning, while I was eating some food prepared for me by the locals, a sort of vegetable soup, when I noticed one of the dogs kept at the lodge coming slowly towards me. The dogs were a strange discovery to begin with. They were also guards here, working with the humans in exchange for meat. So far, none had interacted with me. I think they're a bit afraid. Anyways, this dog was standing half a deaf now from my position on the outdoor bench, eyes fixed upon me. I was obviously concerned. Dogs, are pure predators, evolved to hunt in packs, and this one was eyeing me up where it was planning to make me its next meal. Curiously, it did not try to hide, nor did it try pace or prowl. It stayed still, tail whisking back and forth. Concerned, I waved Nakaseri over. Is something wrong? he asked me. It's the dog, I replied. Is it not meant to be caged when not on guard? 
Nikaseri looked quite surprised at this. A human surprise is quite a thing to see. Their eyebrows go up and something, and they lean their heads back. Uh, no. That wouldn't be. The man trailed off as if coming to a realization. Okay, how do I put this? Do you guys have domesticated animals on your planet? Of course we do. And I told him as much. There were the Kandar, which were used as couriers in ancient times, and which are still raced today. Saha, which are herd animals, which can be ridden by even the truly thick-shelled Burma. Nakasari listened with me explain this, and nodded his head in a gesture of understanding. But you wouldn't tame a predator, right? Goodness, no. What purpose would there be for such a thing? I mean, probably not for you, but for us. There are the perfect hunting buddies. I'll show you. Here, boy. Here, prince. Prince was the name of the dog near me. As I learnt, it reacted to the call of its master. Its tail moved furiously and abounded across the eating area to Nikaseri. Prince jumped up to Nikaseri, who responded with a movement of words and affection and praise. They don't attack us, see? They're friendly to humans. Something about this still troubles me, and yet it was obvious to see the affection between Nikaseri and Prince. I have since learned that the tail movement was an expression of joy. Even when I did not know that, it was clear that the dog loved its master. Nikaseri calmed Prince down and then reached into his pocket and took a biscuit out. Prince's eyes latched onto it immediately. Nikaseri handed the biscuit to me. He was watching you because he was interested in you. Nikaseri nodded at the biscuit. Try giving it to him. Don't worry, he's a good boy. He won't hurt you. Nervously, I pinched the biscuit between my two claws and lowered it to Prince's eye level. He sniffed the biscuit and then snatched it out of my hand with his mouth and devoured it in seconds. Then he made a loud vocalization that started to jump up and down in excitement. Is he thanking me? I asked. I think he wants to play. Hold on, I've got an idea. The result of this encounter was that I spent a great deal of time competing with Prince for our ownership of a rope. He bit down on one end and I held the other, and we pulled it between us. I eventually decided to let Prince win, because my shoulder hurt. But, what sweet creature, he seems to have retained his affection for me. I suppose the dog is like a human, in that the vicious predator that can be also quite friendly which according to all the widely accepted theories of xenopsychobiology, cannot exist. Earth XPP Study Day 14 I understand now. All known complex life requires certain minerals and elements to function and evolve. All planets with life and certain amounts of these vital substances. The more complex the life, the more it needs to be kept developing. Eventually, all planets hit a limit called the Chrysodelarian Limit. A planet at this level has reached the Equilibrium. It has the resources to sustain its current life. But anything much more advanced would have to wipe out another species in order to exist. The KLs are indifferent in every inhabited world. I once attended a talk which suggested that death worlds are the way they are because they have very low Chrysodelarian Limits. Their natural resources are so poor that life is forced to constantly extinguish itself to survive. This leads to a situation where every living thing is locked in a battle for these resources. 
Even if intelligent life develops, they won't last, because their natural aggression coupled with the resource requirements of civilization will eventually result in the destruction of that civilization and species. And thus, the human paradox. How is a species from such a violent world so capable of cooperating with alien races? Simple. Earth-based life forms have an adaption that most deathworlders do not. They have the desire to make friends. The antelope and the wildebeest merge their herds and move as one, keeping watch for the lions and hyenas for each other. Birds eat the flies and the larger mammal skin. Dogs and humans work in teams to bring down prey. Then share it with one another. And curiously, it is this that explains humanity's impulsiveness. Death could come from any corner, but so could help. To progress on Earth the way the humans have, you must take every resource you can get. Yes, the pack of predators that is just set up near your home could tear you limb from limb, but they could also be your greatest allies in cornering prey. This benefits both, but you have to take the risk of talking to them first. On a death world, you must take every chance you get to gather resources and extend your survival. You do not know when your next chance will come. My ancestors, when faced with resources they require taking risks to get, would simply go and get a less risky resource instead, because those always existed. On Earth, they did not. So while most species evolved to be cautious and avoid risks, humans evolved to take risks or die. This means that they are biologically wired to be reckless. When presented with an opportunity, they feel like they have to take it. So they poison their planet with fossil fuels. They drink toxins like the doozy. They tame other predators and live with them. Evolution rewards this strategy. So it persists. But what a contribution to the stellar league this could be. Imagine the advancement of our sciences could make with the human aid. Yes, we will have to rein them in a bit for the sake of the Stellar Safety Commission, but the late Van Vale was correct about them. Their unique psychobiology is an asset. Kalaman Dars, the wise bone, remained on Earth for another two months, studying the Mosai Mara and the humanity. Unfortunately, he never returned to the Great Shell to speak of his findings in person. Two standard days into his journey home, his transport ship stopped responding to contacts. Eight standard days after this, the ship reappeared with the Great Shell system, its crew and passengers all dead from violent injuries. The ship's data modules had been wiped. Kalamandar had rather fortunately indulged in his quirk of recording his thoughts in physical notebook, as well as on the data screens, meaning that these observations survived the attack. This was the second instigating incident of the First Stellar League War. End of chapter.